0: We all need food to survive, but the way we produce and consume today is not sustainable nor healthy.
1: We looked to science to find the answer, but got surprised. There was no clear answer on what a healthy diet from a sustainable food production really looked
0: like. This is why EAT gathered 37 of the world's best scientists to get a definitive answer on what a healthy and sustainable diet looks like for all.
1: Their joint result is the Eat Lancet Commission, not just a scientific report. It is a blueprint for a better and more sustainable future.
0: It will have fundamental implications for how we produce, distribute, consume and waste food. Nothing will ever be the same again.
1: The good news is that it's possible to feed healthy and sustainable food to a growing population.
0: But to get there, you could argue that we'll have to question everything we know about food and learn how to eat again.
1: I'm Dr. Hazel Wallace from The Food Medic.
0: And I'm Dr. Sandro DeMeo, CEO of EAT.
1: From the studio in London, we aim to translate the EAT Lancet findings into everyday actions to you, our global
0: audience. This is the Let's Rethink Food podcast, a collaboration between EAT and The Food Medic.
1: Last episode, we explored the Eat Lancet Commission on Healthy Diets from Sustainable Food Systems. The report introduces the Planetary Health Diet, a diet that has the power to improve the health of millions and safeguard our ecosystems.
0: The Commission recommends a shift towards more healthy and sustainable food. Meat can stay on our plates, but we have to look to more plant-based sources for our protein.
1: Joining us today are two amazing people pushing the movement of veggies forward.
0: First with us today, we have food entrepreneur and the founder of the New Nordic Cuisine. Klaus, it's so fantastic to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me. Klaus, what inspired you to first get into sustainable cooking?
2: Actually, yeah, that's a good question. I didn't walk that route in in the early days of my career as a chef uh, and entrepreneur and change maker in the beginning was very much about how to use deliciousness in his own right as a weapon against the lack of attention and the lack of enthusiasm and time that people would devote towards the food culture. But, I mean, I learned later in my life how much was at the stake when we discuss and when we act or don't act in certain ways the tipping point probably was when in two thousand and two, three, just at the at the verge of, of launching NOMA at the Nordic Cuisine movement, I knew that I had to convince a government that it would make sense for Denmark or the Nordic Council of Ministers to invest time and money in this field. So I and also we asked the question if we are on a blank sheet about to create a food culture. Why not try to create the best one in the world? And what does it mean these days with everything we know about healthiness of the people and the planet? What does it actually mean to be best for the world, in the world? That kind of opened up the doors towards sustainability in the wider sense of the word to us. And therefore it became a crucial component of, of the New Nordic cuisine ideology.
1: That was a super ambitious project that you set yourself. What were the biggest challenges when you launched the new Nordic Cuisine? And how did you get people to take on plant-based eating and take it seriously?
2: One of the reasons why this project somehow succeeded was that we were guided by trust. So we basically believed that it was possible to find a way of talking about the highest possible level of beauty and ethical standards within a food culture without giving uh, the stakeholders a feel that uh, they were losers and they were not doing their part. So we basically found a way of, so we agreed that if we could eat less meat and more vegetables, do we all agree that this would be a wonderful scenario? If we leave behind, some some of us are meat providers and maybe it'll hurt our business if it all happened tomorrow. But in the big scheme of things, is anyone against the concept of eating more vegetables and and less meat philosophically. And no one was against that. So we kind of defined the pillars of the movement that represented some sort of direction, but that didn't commit anyone to anything in the short term. Mm. And then we created NOMA. And NOMA set out to be vegetable-driven to begin with because French were kind of cuisine was a meat-driven cuisine. So why not, why not be, a, uh, for all these reasons, a vegetable-driven cuisine? The vegetables represent in so many colours, so many textures, so many opportunities for a chef that was never tapped into. The whole plant kingdom mm. is so much richer and uh, more diverse than the world of meat.
0: And of course then, Klaus, the, the rest of the story is famous, that, that Noma became the world's best restaurant year on year and, and internationally acclaimed. And I love the fact that you bring these concepts of, of trust, that the whole movement, the whole philosophy is based around an implicit trust, even though what we're talking about is a diet. Because, again, it goes back to the very roots of of Scandinavia, but it also goes back to a, a truthfulness, a, a sense of integrity in having trust in what we eat, how we eat, how we waste less, and that trust flows in so many directions. Was that a conscious element of building a food movement around trust or was it something that just happened?
2: We had that crucial weekend in November 2004, the New Nordic Cuisine Symposium, where the manifesto was launched, and where, looking backwards, all—I mean, a lot of major, major, major stakeholders committed themselves to doing something in that room, including four Nordic ministers, the CEO of the biggest dairy company, the CEO of the biggest meat company, the CEO of the biggest brewery. We basically met them and asked them to participate in that room and telling them that we believe that deep down in their hearts, they were committed to the same dream that we were and that they only needed to do something. I mean, later on, I learned that this whole idea, this whole approach to other people that may even be your enemies is called heliotropy or heliotropism, Uh, the idea of being guided by the light instead of by the dark. Mm. Uh, So we kind of intuitively ended up there, but I can't Mm. say that it was some plan that we had made. It was very much about gut feeling also. How can we make this work? We have the symposium. We want to win over the audience. We want to have positive, upbeat speeches. How do we get there?
0: And I love that, guided by the light and not the dark. And that's so important, sort of providing something that's inspiring and aspirational rather than preachy and with with a hard-hitting, dreaded message. Our other guest joining us today is a formidable force from Down Under, food writer, TV host, chef, and I have to say she's a very loved character where I come from in Australia, Alice Zavlasky. Alice, it's fantastic to have you join us and we're so glad that you've been able to get up so late to to make this time.
1: Alice, you have worked with maybe one of the most important tasks and challenging tasks in the world and that is getting kids to eat more <laughs> vegetables. Tell us about this phenomenon <laughs> and how does it work?
3: <laughs> well, um, I suppose that I should begin at the beginning. I'm actually a teacher by trade. Mm. So um, I think helping kids, to understand and be open to new ideas like the fact that vegetables can be delicious um, is something that has always excited me. So I think that was a really good place to start from. And the opportunity came up through the uh, vegetable growers of Australia. They approached me and said, what would you do to make vegetables cool for kids? Hmm. (laughs) And I knew that the place where kids are the spongiest, the most open to new ideas was in the classroom. And I think... The the concept of education to drive change is one that gets bandied around all the time, but it actually comes down to creative execution. I think that um, Mm. a lot of people try to do great things, but the reason why some of it falls down is because it's grown-ups making stuff for kids
0: Mm. instead
3: of people tapping into their inner child and saying, what would I have wanted to see at at eight years old, at 10 years old? So that's, you know, Phenomenon puts kids first. Um, It's a video series featuring kids, who um, have skits and and learn. Some of it really is completely unscripted, and it's them in a classroom or interviewing an expert, like an astronaut candidate or a, a football champion, and finding out their own relationship with with food. And we sort of follow them along. And the number one thing that we never say is they're good for you, they're healthy, any of those sorts of things. You know, these are the nutritional benefits because that doesn't actually land for kids.
0: Mm. It's about
3: you know, being guided by the light. It's about the optimism of, hey, vegetables are tasty and look how great they make you feel. By recess, you've got so much energy. Let's go there. Yeah. So I think that's really the future. And, of course, on top of the videos, we've got a series of resources for teachers because what we found through our research was that teachers are super keen to get more food literacy into the classroom, but they don't know where to start. So, you know, a maths teacher who might not necessarily be a great cook themselves really wants their kids to be more food literate, but what can they do? Well, why don't we start with fractions, for example, and instead mm. of teaching it with a pie chart, why not make an okonomiyaki pancake and get the kids to separate that out and share it amongst themselves and, hey, check it out. You've got some cabbage, some peas, some onions, some carrots, and, hey, isn't that delicious? You should not really make that at home on the weekend. <laughs> so it's creating that conversation and driving the change in that way.
0: And I have to say, you, you watch Phenomenon and there's such an energy, there's such a buzz. You, I find it incredibly entertaining. And then you realise afterwards that you've learned all these things that you sort of didn't even realise you, you were learning. <laughs> also, Alice has an amazing collection of glasses, which also helps. Um, but, but Alice, we just talked, uh, Klaus was talking about shifting policymakers, and you're talking about shifting, mm-hmm. you know, utilising and, and leveraging the incredible role that parents and also teachers have, at the end of the day, it's very much the same tool set. So what advice would you give, whether it's a policymaker or it's a teacher or it's a parent, what advice would you give to them in, in when shaping an education campaign or when trying to engage a really wide audience, particularly of young people, in healthier eating? Klaus
3: hit the nail on the head. I think that it starts with stakeholder management. And it's all about actually engaging people in those positions of power, those gatekeepers, the policymakers, as well as the gatekeepers in the house you know the people who are actually buying putting putting the products into the trolley to be part of the conversation and to feel like there is a way forward mm. I think a lot of the time especially within that sort of health promotion space there is a lot of negativity and people come from a place of of pessimism like yeah. oh it's a pretty tough problem you know it's a moving freight train how do we stop this train the fact of the matter is that is that it's about empowering the individual mm. and it's about giving the individual the sense that they can make small changes that can create tiny little ripples within their own sphere of influence that can slowly but surely lead to a tidal wave of change. Because Mm. if we wait for people, you know, somewhere over the pond to make a change, then we're just going to be tapping our watches.
0: And Alice, I have nieces and I hope one day to have kids. I have two beautiful nieces in Australia, one's three and one's five. What are the things that I should be doing with my nieces today and my kids in the future to ensure that they have a great connection with food and a great connection particularly with fruits and vegetables?
3: Well, there are three key elements to think about. So the first one is exposure. For a lot of parents and and caregivers, they tend to find that what happens, especially around about sort of three years old, you know, that sort of toddlery age when when kids start taking agency, they start exploring the idea of power dynamics by Mm. saying no. And for a lot of parents and caregivers, that's very daunting and it can create some real issues around the dinner table. So my first piece of advice for them is that it's normal. It's a completely normal phase of development and it's just about chipping away and continuing to give that exposure in tiny tastes. So instead of a big pile of broccoli on the plate, just have like a pea-sized bit of broccoli and introduce it into familiar dishes, you know, slowly over time. Kids need to experience a new food, you know, upwards of 14 times sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I know that that may seem daunting, but it doesn't have to be, exposure doesn't have to mean putting it in their mouth. So it can be something like, you know, that's why part of Phenomenon's kind of appeal is that exposure can even be just learning new facts about broccoli.
0: That's something I really want to pick up on as well, Alice, because... Mm-hmm. what what you do is not just about getting kids to eat veggies but it's about learning what veggies are where they come from what time of the year they they grow i've seen clips you know of you in the garden showing them vegetables they've never seen before and and smelling them and and feeling them so you know there are all these different stages of engagement that you can you can go through even as an adult which can mm-hmm. kind of help you to familiarize and maybe start to love your veg just that little bit more.
3: Totally. Well, I think that we're beyond just being food literate or the importance of just food literacy. I think it needs to be critical food literacy. So, understanding mm. food within a broader context of the environment, of society, of socioeconomic factors, of political factors, of changes over time. You know, I'm a history teacher by trade, so I'm, I'm fascinated by how, how food has changed over time. And I think that that's something that everybody can sort of pick up. But being critically literate also means that people are far less likely to get sucked into the BS that can be out there. And especially in this world of over-information, you know, we're in this information age, there's a lot of really confusing advice. So I think that Part of it as well is just actually tapping back into yourself and listening to your own body and your own needs. After exposure is positive reinforcement that's not Mm. food-based. So I think that um, we've all done it, we've all heard it, that idea of no dessert until you finish your (laughs) dinner. And (laughs) what happens then is that we're glorifying sweets and we're vilifying veg. Interesting. So, yeah, absolutely, and we don't even notice ourselves doing it. You know, it's a a narrative that we kind of parrot because it's something that we grew up with, but Mm. it didn't work for us. So why is it suddenly going to work for your nieces or for your future spawn? So (laughs) we'll pull them all away from that. And um, whether that positive reinforcement be something like, hey, how cool is this? You know more stuff now. You know, you've expanded your mind or you've just gotten 100% on that math test with fractions because you made that Okonomiyaki pancake and wasn't it delicious? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a pretty sort of simplistic example. But it could even be something like if you're – child or um, your niece, I'm going to go with one of your nieces, If you, what does your niece love more than anything?
0: Um, well, I'd, I'd love to say her uncle, but I don't, I'm not sure that's, uh, no, uh, well, she, <laughs> she, she, photo. she, loves she
3: yeah, uncle.
0: she loves being, she loves being down at the farm uh, with the grandparents outside probably.
3: Fantastic. Yeah, which is just so perfect, isn't it? So seeing things from their perspective, understanding their lens and what drives them, their mm. leaders, can be that kind of key to find that positive reinforcement. So for her, it's being outside in the garden with nonna and nonno. Yeah. So um, why not plants and stuff while, she, while she's mm. there? That's a really cool little thing. And then the final thing, which is I think really key and something that everybody listening can take away, is role modelling. Mm. So we've all got to check ourselves before we work ourselves, because sometimes we kind of we say things without even hearing ourselves, or we do things without even noticing. So, for example, we had some uh, family friends around for dinner who were complaining about their ten-year-old son not eating um, not eating vegetables. Let's go with that. So he eats a very, very white, brown diet, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And then his dad started speaking about, oh, you know, I'm on this new diet, blah 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 blah. Oh, but I can't stand it. I don't really like, you know, I don't like onion, I don't like carrot. <laughs> like, Can you hear yourself? So what's actually happening is that your son is just picking up that that behavior is normalized and mm. just continuing it on. And so I think that even if we have to fake it till we make it, mm. we just need to break that cycle of of repetition. Love it. I think that's
1: really useful tips that everyone can take on board. Mm. Now Klaus, just bringing it back to you, our findings tell us that we we need to lower our red meat intake drastically. So today, 75% of the food we eat comes from only 12 plants and five animal species. We have over 14,000 edible plants to diversify our diets with. So Klaus, my question to you is how can we inspire future leaders to bring tasty and delicious plant-based solutions to the table?
2: Isn't it happening? Happening already? I, I mean, I see it coming. I, I see a, a whole generation of kids growing up that that are a little bit fed up with their parents screwing up the food systems. I have two girls who, at the age of eleven and fourteen, stopped eating meat for one year. They became vegans overnight after having seen cowspiracy, and and literally <laughs> refused to eat uh, meat of any sort. So I, I feel that we are. Moving into a place where you know millions of kids in the whole modern Western world, at least, are super open towards everything from the plant kingdom and super skeptical towards eating uh, eating meat. Of course, that, that doesn't mean that we should not worry or or be unambitious. But I think I, I truly believe that things are moving in a very good direction for plants, unless and- they don't want to be eaten.
0: Of course, there are big parts of the world, particularly the world's poorest uh, communities that still eat too little animal-based protein and healthy animal-based proteins, meat, you know, in simple terms. Um, And for some of those populations, it will be about eating more. But as you say, for billions of people across the planet, particularly in the areas of the world where you and I live, it's about eating dramatically less meat and particularly poor, poor quality or poorly raised red meat. How do we strike that balance? How do we have that more nuanced discussion of it's not about all or nothing. It's about actually focusing on quality. It's about dramatic reductions for, for many rich parts of the world so that we can all eat a healthy diet that does include some animal protein if if you choose for that to be there. Of course, you can be very healthy as a vegan mm. as well, but but how mm. how do you find that balance and and drive reductions in higher income parts of the world yeah. so that the entire planet can eat a healthy diet and still hand the planet on to the future of humanity.
2: I think we, we need eloquent people with self-confidence standing up for how beef can be part of our food systems. Mm. I, I mean, in between a feedlot and beef grazing on uh, pastures and commons, there is uh, a world, if Huge not uh, more worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we need to get to the point where meat is not always in the defensive. I don't believe that, the, I mean, we, we also need uh, to fertilize the soil and nothing is better than, well, shit from animals. <laughs> um, so I think on the one hand, we need to stop uh, beating up the meat in an unnuanced way. And then and that is probably the, the more complicated part. The easy part, I think, is to win people over for vegetables. The, the reality mm. is that just 20, 25, 30 years ago, when I when I was a young man, whenever you had vegetables, it, it just sucked. It was typically vegetables, you know, boiled to death with no flavor, no texture, no color. It was just horrible vegetables. And now you have, within the last 10 to 15 years, uh, you see all kinds of I mean, who doesn't love hummus? I mean, who yeah. What child doesn't <laughs> love a falafel? Yeah. Uh, what child can resist a, you know, a creamy potato soup or a creamy sunchoke soup with uh, apples? What child can resist dal or pakoras uh, or a? You tomato? make you make me I mean,
0: hungry, Klaus. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but but so I think the beautiful thing is that um, it is so easy. Mm. to serve uh, plant-based meals that are extremely delicious, unlike the vegetables I had in my life. I mean, it was easy for me to hate vegetables because they didn't taste like anything. But these days with, you know, vegetarian sushi is also a phenomenon that I see so many kids love. So there are, it's just a matter of making sure that that no one misses the point that the vegetable dishes are extremely delicious and you know, to some extent, more delicious than meat-based dishes. Mm. I mean, and again, it's, it's not a fight in between meat and vegetables. We just can't live with any child growing up believing that vegetables doesn't taste nice.
0: Mm. No, I I, I totally how agree. Do we get,
2: how, how do we get there? I mean, it's a combination of what's going on in the public schools. I mean, we can't force ignorant parents to do something they don't know how to do. And then, I mean, the good part is that... Uh, Because of the market, it it pays off to have a fast food restaurant or a restaurant or a street food stall that just serves delicious uh, plant-based food. And and at least I see that popping up in many places in Denmark these days Mm. and also in New York.
0: So, Klaus and Alice, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I really love the idea that you you talked about at the start, Alice, of making veg cool. I mean, I say that as a total nerd, um, but I really want to explore that because I think that's a critical part of building a movement around the planetary health diet. So, Klaus, first to you, when we think of Scandinavia, you know, I think of tall handsome well dressed well educated design conscious forward thinking people on their bicycles i think of the I think of the cool kids and i can't help but think a big part of the of the success of the new Nordic diet is the fact that it's a pretty cool concept you know we think of Scandinavia when we think of the new Nordic diet and we, when we think of Scandinavians, we think of cool kids. Has that been an important part of of building a global movement to make the diet, something aspirational, something cool.
2: I, I would say no. Uh, I mean, probably this ended up being cool to you know, natural wine, reconnecting with the farmer, respecting the soil, uh, being enthusiastic about cabbage. Maybe it ended up being kind of cool, but it was never part of the of the roadmap or game plan to make it cool. For us, it was, I guess, obvious that it was possible to love cabbage. We just needed to find a way to to kind of handle cabbage. That was mm-hmm. interesting enough for it to get there. But coolness was never something we strive for. But I guess that when you are a pioneer and you happen to identify and, and execute solutions that are best for the many, not just for the few, then it, it kind of ends up being cool. So before we wrap up
1: the episode, I just want to ask, I guess, a question to both of you guys. So you're quite experienced in the kitchen, but for those at home who maybe are not experienced in the kitchen, how can we make plant-based cooking easy, but also tasty? Like what practical tips can we give
3: people? I think the the first thing that I have to say is that we live in the information age. So Google is your friend. <laughs> Look at what's in the bottom of your crisper and use that. The next thing that's really important is we're in an age of less but better. So buy less of something that's mm. the highest quality that you can afford, mm. and what you'll find is that you need to do less to it because it's already flavoursome. Mm. Um, great tip. we For example, you're, there are a lot of um, fantastic community-supported agriculture schemes cropping up in Australia and across the world. So we've got a, a farm box that comes to us every Saturday, and it's full of um, fresh fruit and vegetables that were picked the day before, and the difference that it makes to the food that we cook, you know, it makes everybody a, an absolute legend, and you really, You don't have to do much to it at all. And then it's about learning more. Like, for example, brassicas love being burnt. So if you've got that cabbage, you know that burning it or caramelizing it is going to bring out the sweetness. So Mm. have a play with Brussels sprouts. Um, See what happens if you add some honey soy to some broccoli and pop that in the oven. Just keep experimenting. And if something doesn't work, then, you know, if at first you don't succeed, just Dust yourself off and try again, in the great words of the philosopher Aliyah. And (laughs) I think the final tip is make sure to season your food properly. (laughs) I think that um, nobody likes an overboiled, farty cauliflower <laughs> with no salt and no no fat on it. So, you know, why not instead you know, give it some respect and drizzle it with olive oil, you know, sprinkle it with some salt flakes mm. and serve it with a side of hummus. Why not? If you do <laughs>
1: add <Yeah>. hummus.
3: <laughs>
0: respect your cauliflower.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: correct. Klaus, is there anything you would add to that for people listening at home?
2: For me, seasoning is Basically, that's the most important thing in cooking, I would say. And I think people, once they learn about this, it's, it's totally eye-opening for them. So the importance of reducing the, the liquid component in food to the, so to the, the, the intensity of the flavors are right, but even more importantly, getting salt, sweet, acidic, bitter, hot, umami. Those six basic components that, that are so important for that carrot or that cauliflower or that potato dish. And then, and then just you know, with a little bit of vinegar, with a little bit of, of, you know, once knowing where you can have bitterness and how mm. much, how important that is to the final element of deliciousness. Raw onions, a little bit of cabbage, um, lemon zest, uh, orange zest, even beer. So, so seasoning, and in terms of time, I would say once you learn how to cook for three days and not for one, I mean if I cook dal or cook a beetroot soup, I cook for sixteen people, even though we are only four at the dinner table that evening, because then I can freeze part of it or I can, you know, put it in the fridge and eat the other half four days later. It gives me, you know, flexibility, it gives me a whole array of things I can pull out of the fridge and the time I invest in it is almost the same. Mm. So cooking for more days and embracing your leftovers, that is key if you wanna have fun at home.
0: Such great tips. Absolutely.
2: Sometimes I must say that cooking four, three to four dishes for my wife and, and my oldest daughter, and then also, you know, orchestrating a couple of vegan dishes while trying to maintain kind of a work life could be tough. But then I realised that I could make a a vegetable based meatloaf. So by having, you know, any vegetable left over cooked, grilled, whatever, even marinated, a handful of nuts two handfuls of um, cooked lentils, peas, or beans, I mean, these pulses, a little bit of tomato puree, and some dal-ish spices, and then a little bit of garlic and onion sauteed in a pan. Once you bring those basic elements, and the beautiful part is whatever you have left in the fridge uh, of vegetables, no matter what kind, and then into the food processor and turn that all into some sort of mash, then just uh, bake it slowly in the oven until it uh, sits. Mm. Then you can heat it for the next three, four, five, six days. You can fry it like a almost like a piece of meat on the pan, and it is such a flexible thing that, that my kids love. When when they came back from school, they could just pull out a little bit, cut a slice of the of the meatloaf, and then heat it in the oven or in the pan. And so it's a it's a wonderful way to clean up your fridge and also to make sure that your your children have always access to a healthy, delicious chunk of uh, plant kingdom.
0: Oh, I, I'm, so good! <laughs> I'm, I'm literally salivating. That that sounds amazing.
2: We're
1: going to be definitely <laughs> trying that one out. We'll let you know how we get on.
0: Well, two incredible legends of building the movement for plant-based, plant-forward delicious, healthy, tasty, sustainable food. Thank you both so much, Alice. Thank you for staying up late. And Klaus, thank you for calling in from Denmark. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're off to cook some vegan or vegetarian uh, Klaus Meyer-inspired <laughs> meatloaf.
2: <laughs> good night, Europe. <laughs> good night, good night. Good day.
3: Thank you. <laughs>